So Money Episode 429, Howard Eisenberg. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Money is brought to you today by Wealthfront. Wealthfront is the most tax-efficient, low-cost, hassle-free way to invest. Now, many of you I know are interested in simplifying your investment strategy. You want to reduce fees. You want to work with a service that you trust. And Wealthfront delivers. It builds and manages your personalized, globally diversified portfolio. To open an account, the minimum is just $500, and that gets you a periodically rebalanced, diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds. There are zero trading fees, zero hidden fees, and advisory fees that are just a fraction of traditional advisors. In fact, Wealthfront manages your first $10,000 for free. To learn more and sign up, visit wealthfront.com forward slash so money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. How are you? How's it going? I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for joining me on this Monday. I have to say, just finished an incredible interview with the guest you're about to hear. And he is one of my, if not the oldest guests I've had on the show and also the most accomplished. Howard Eisenberg is here. He is almost 90, about to celebrate his 90th birthday this year. He is an award-winning author, journalist, songwriter, and playwright. He's written a film, he's written 10 books, and he's also written a musical called Million Dollar Bet. And later this year, Howard will be publishing another book called Adorable Scoundrels, which is a treasury of toddler poems for grandparents. Howard was also the songwriter for Eddie Fisher, the American pop sensation who sold millions of records and, quite notably, was one of Elizabeth Taylor's many husbands. And finally, if you're not familiar with Howard or his work, you might be very familiar with the book that his late wife, Arlene, co-authored with her daughters called What to Expect When You're Expecting. You know that book, The Parenting Bible. I mean, if you haven't read it, you have probably a friend who's read it or you will be reading it in your future. I could have talked to Howard for days on end. You know, whenever I get the opportunity to meet somebody who has such perspective, I have so many questions. I don't even know where to begin. And I, you can tell I'm a little all over the place with this interview because his stories are so colorful, so riveting, so life altering in some ways that uh, he just takes you to another place, another world, another time. And then you kind of have to find yourself back in reality to remember that you're here and you have to ask him another question because you're conducting an interview after all. Quite the human being, this Howard Eisenberg. We talk about how he developed his passion for writing. It was quite accidental. How life changed after getting married and his wife publishing this international best-selling book that for decades has been on the New York Times bestseller list. And his views on the world today. How is the world doing in 2016? Is this the best of times, the worst of times? Here is Howard Eisenberg. Howard Eisenberg, welcome to So Money. How are you? Uh, it is such a beautiful day. How could I be anything but happy? I know. Finally, a beautiful day, right? We've You're on the Upper West Side. I'm in Brooklyn. Uh, we've had a pretty long and, and difficult 
winter slash spring? Well, it wasn't that difficult. Come on. <laughs> you, live, you, it, you have a it? lot more perspective than I do, Howard. You're 90 years old. You're my eldest. Right. Oh, three months to go. Three months. Oh, almost. Okay. Almost 90. You are my eldest guest on this show to date. And so I want to ask you, what would you say was your best decade ever? You know, we think of, I'm in my 30s and I feel like every decade, I think I know it all. You know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm like, how could, how could life get any better? But certainly, hopefully it will. That's a great financial question. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a financial question at all. We'll get to money in a second. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking that this is a financial show. Uh, My best decade, there's no question about it. I met and married my wife. I was in my 20s, my early 20s, and she was 18. I met her when she was 16, and she just made my life wonderful. And I had 50 years with her, and uh, I'm sorry, I, I break up every time I talk about her. Arlene was just, I called her Wonder Woman, I called her St. Arlene. She was just great. I was so blessed. She was an amazing woman. I read her books. <laughs> I think most people who had children or are about to have children will be reading her books that she co-authored with your daughter, your two daughters. And in many ways, she was your writing partner all these years. All those years, right. And, and, it, and it kind of happened unexpectedly. It wasn't that you never, I think, even intended to be a writer. And she perhaps fell into it as a result of being married to you. How did you work together? How did, how did that collaboration work? Well, we had, we, at, at the beginning, we uh, shared a typewriter built for two. I had a Smith Corona, Smith Corona uh, electric, and it's right behind me. <laughs> I still use it for envelopes. And, um, and, and the first time she used it was totally accidental. Yeah. Uh, and my fault. Uh, you had writer's block, right? You had to write a, a very long magazine piece. It's the first and only time that I had writer's block. And um, I had a story due about Mother's Day. And I spent about, well, I, I guess I had a month to do it. And I kept rewriting the lead. I was new at this at that point. I had written for minor magazines, venture magazines, and that's how I got started. But then when I got this, it was my first major assignment. And I had to make it work. It had to be right. So I kept re and, and that, the lesson I learned from this is never keep rewriting the lead. <laughs> and that, that could apply financially too. When you start a business, if you're doing the same thing over and over and it's not working, just move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Well, so, yeah. So Arlene, after I, I spent days and nights trying to get this article right. Arlene, on the day before it was due, a Sunday morning, said, Howard, move over. And she she had been with me at the interview, and she just wrote a draft of it that was just great. I had, all I had to do was polish it. So I, I brought it in, I brought it into the um, the editors, and it was This Week magazine. It used to be, it's with one of the, the dead dinosaurs in the publishing industry, it was the Herald Tribune weekly weekend supplement. So I brought it in. They liked the piece. They called me the next day and said, 
The problem is we can't, we don't have room in the layout for her name. So it's just going to be by Howard Eisenberg. But that was the last time until after she died that anything read other than by Arlene and Howard Eisenberg. In some ways, your writer's block was such a a stroke of luck and it was meant to be in some ways because it was really what probably started her career as a writer. I mean, between you and Arlene and your daughters, you, all of you, your family has taken over the bookstores. You're probably, I read, you know, on every shelf, uh, more or less, you kind of fell into this, but, but ultimately do you think you discovered your passion or is just something that, you know, you were good at and it paid the bills? Well, it started in the army. I was 18 and, uh, uh, it was the end of World War II. The last six, I was there only for the last six weeks. Thank heavens! I was in the infantry, and when we we landed, we, we finally wound up at a, an SS barracks in Flossenburg, Germany. And my captain noticed that I had had two years of college, so he said, "Write me a newspaper." He wanted to keep the guys busy, so I I did. I wrote two issues of the Company K Rifleman, and when I saw everybody reading what I had written. And I like what I'd written. I said, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And that's what's happened. Let's talk about money. You've been pushing money on me since we got on the show. You, you I mean, I guess <laughs> it's a financial yeah. show. I, yeah, I think money's great, but I really don't. I, I, fortunately, I fortunately have enough of it. Mm-hmm. You the, didn't always, right? Let's go back to a time when... You were transitioning. My guess is that when Arlene's book became a multinational, international bestseller, maybe your lives changed at that point, but maybe it was even earlier than that. So when when was there a time of financial transition in your life and how did you deal with it? Well, we moved, we, after we got married, we moved to, uh, moved to an apartment in, in Forest Hills for a year. And then, um, we, I was working for Eddie Fisher and, the singing, the 50s singing star, 50s, 60s singing star. And we had enough money to buy a house in Garden City. And when we moved there, um, it, you know, we, the, the freelance life, life was beginning too. And I guess I got my timing a little bit stuck, mixed up because, before, because I, uh, Eddie was in the, um, Korean War with the, the U.S. Army band, band. So, all during his absence for two years, uh, Arlene and I were freelance writing. And, uh, it, when it starts, you've got to, you've got to, it, you, it's like any business, I guess, although I never think of it as a business. You have to make contacts with editors. You get a, you get invited, you get things start to really get good and you get invited to, by the Reader's Digest to come and have lunch. And then editors ask you to lunch and the assignments come in. But there are moments when you don't have the money to pay for your electric bill or your mortgage. And I just, going through stuff in my cellar the other day, I found letters in which I'm pleading with the bank to give me an extra month. So, yeah, it was tough at first. And, and you have to keep going or you, when you're a freelance writer or you are going to fill, fall into a deep pit and be covered up with slime. And some things never change. I know people today have the same struggles with freelancing. It's that inconsistent paycheck. So looking back, what were some of the ways that you kept afloat besides the bank helping you out maybe in a pinch? 
Well, at that time, the the ambition of every freelance writer or almost everyone was to get to get to write a textbook because textbooks were called an annuity. So we were invited to by McGraw Hill to do a health textbook for colleges. And uh, it sounded like a marvelous opportunity. So we spent a whole summer in Washington interviewing everybody at NIH. And we got back. We had volumes and volumes of notes. And um, they wanted it. They had usually used academics to write textbooks. So they wanted to try an experiment and use popular writers. So we got started on it. And uh, I was... I, I had at the time a job with a medical magazine as well, which is a way to be sure you have an income and and health insurance. And so Arlene was doing most of the writing on the book. So she wrote several chapters, submitted them. They were all passed out to academics to, for critiques. And the critiques came back negatively, not all of them, but enough so that McGraw-Hill had decided in a meeting that, we probably, probably, if they'd made a mistake and having writers rather than academics would, was not the, rate of, the way to go. So we go to this meeting and it's a, a long mahogany table with editors and, and financial people on every side of it and little me and little Arlene at the other end. And they said, I'm sorry, we've got bad news. And Arlene mm-hmm. said, well, tell us what it is. And uh, they said, well, it's too didactic um you you need you need to loosen up a little bit and i'm afraid it's not going to work arlene said give me a month i was ready to give it up because uh, i you know she was doing most of it anyway but arlene was she was tough and she was creative and she went home she rewrote those two chapters they went out to the the academics and I came back with raves so we did the book mostly I did polishing she did mostly organizing she was a great organizer and and, and in the end because they had not completely trusted that we would come through with the book that they wanted they assigned an academic to do a paperback so when our book came out it did very well but People start kids. Kids started buying paperbacks instead of hardcovers, and so we never had the annuity. But it was a great experience. Sounds like it. What do you make, Howard, of the world today? Publishing. You talk about kids wanting to buy paperbacks, and fast forward to now, kids are reading. Everything's electronic, and the publishing industry, in some ways, is either dying or changing rapidly. How have things changed, and how have some things stayed the same for you? Well. When we got into the publishing business, I, I had we had done an article for Parade magazine, uh, and it was it came out on a Sunday, and uh, on a Monday we got three publishers' offers, and an agent called us with, with uh, saying he wanted to represent us. So we chose the one from uh, well, it doesn't matter which one he chose, but we wrote we wrote a book called uh, How to Be Your Own Doctor. Sometimes, and it was pretty successful. We, we got onto the uh, major TV shows, but those are the days when you you submitted a proposal to a publisher and, a, and through an agent, 
And they they said yes. They gave you a contract, and life went on. You wrote the book. When the, the challenge of that first book was to say, "Can I write a book?" All I've done is magazine article. And then I said to myself, and Arlene, well, what's a book? It's like fifteen articles. We can do that." So we did write it. And then came my neighbor next door who wanted me to write well, how to be your own lawyer sometimes. So he finally. He finally convinced me that we had to do it, and we did it. But I didn't want to be stuck in the self self uh, self help book category, <laughs> so we moved off into other things. And I did a book with my brother, who was an OBGYN, uh, which should have been titled "Confessions of an OBGYN," but I didn't want him back. <laughs> That's a great title. That's a great title. That's a I that, you could run in so many directions with that book. Well, we call, you know, I struggled to get a, a better title, and, and we came up with Night Calls. And it was, <laughs> it's a really, really good book. I'm very proud of it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he, my brother was very sh- shy at that point in his life. So after he did his first tour tour on a TV show, he said, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> so the book died. Oh. I really want that book republished, and I'm trying to find somebody who will republish it, because then we can use the title Confessions of an OBGYN. There you go. We actually sold five chapters from the book to magazines. Howard, what would you say was um, how you enjoyed your money? Tell us a little bit about your lifestyle as you were raising your family. Well, it didn't start with a lot of money. (laughs) We were uh, living in Garden City and just meeting our bills. And uh, my daughter, my youngest daughter, came home. Oh, my oldest daughter. <laughs> she was the, the came home one morning and said, "Raymond came to school today, and he had photographs from his family's Christmas trip to London and Paris. And can't we go too?" So I spent the next half hour explaining that on a freelance writer's income, we could not go too. But at that point. My youngest daughter, Heidi, who, by the way, joined Arlene in writing What to Expect When You're Expecting and has continued it all these years and expanded it in magnificently into a website and a foundation that helps underprivileged, uh, under, under-income women with free books. Heidi walked in. She was like three years old or four years old. She was carrying a little child's duffel bag all packed, and a, a pajama arm was was hanging out, dangling from it. And Heidi said, I'm ready to go. When are we leaving? <laughs> and that was so beautiful that I, I said, well, I'll see what I can do. And I made phone calls, and I got a free trip to Europe on a Wow. Uh, Who did you shoot. call? Who did you call? I'm on- <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it was, fortunately, it was a company that was just starting uh, uh, passenger stuff. It previously had been freight. So we went on the U.S., on the SS America to uh, I- England. We spent the next year traveling, th- three kids, a lot of textbooks. We went to all over Europe and to Israel, living check to check. We rented our house. My father-in-law sent us the checks when I, to American Express, and we lived on never knowing where the next grocery bill payment would come from. Traveling to Paris, I remember going to Paris, running out of gas, not having any money, 
hoping that there was money at American Express, and there was. But that was a great year. We just loved it. And we so so uh, spending the money when we had it, we 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 believe, we believe in tithing. So that's one one way to spend money. Mm-hmm. Donations. Yeah, we we just you know we just like to help people. People helped us, and it's it's a great world. And I don't I don't believe in, in amassing money. I think if you have enough, I, I feel so sad about the people who are at the top of the heap in this country. Who many of them are wonderful people and are very generous, but the ones who just want to keep piling up the millions and then the billions and then the trillions. Mm-hmm. I pity them. I really do. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 84 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer-made, customizable templates to choose from. The drag-and-drop editor. There's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy too busy, too busy worrying about your budget, too busy scheduling appointments, too busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your website today. The result is stunning. You were not born during the depression. You were born a little bit after the depression. Um, how did your parents raise you financially? With what sort of financial philosophies and mentality? Well, if you got a dollar a week for an allowance, that was great. Um, and my, I, I learned a lot from my father, who <clears throat> had a very was very creative and very imaginative, and you know, was brought up on the Lower East Side and 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 designed and. And, and made slipper socks that you could wear during the night because otherwise your feet would freeze. And uh, some years later, opened his own slipper factory on, in New Jersey, which was very successful until I have a photograph. I could, If I could find it and quickly, I'd show it to you. It shows the picture of him with some of the people in his, in, in his uh, factory, the staff, well, maybe six people. And there was an electric light bulb hanging from wires. And that was the undoing of my father's factory. It, it caught fire. And as the Daily Mirror, uh, uh, one of the newspapers long gone, wrote in a headline, not a soul was saved. Uh-huh. But my father spent the next five to ten years repaying money that he owed. He did not declare bankruptcy. And his integrity um, is something I'm very proud of. What do you make of the world today, Howard? I mean, really, people say the world is getting to be a scarier place, a, be- a worse place. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that there is a lot that we can be joyful about and looking forward to? Well, my hope is that creativity will take over and and undo the damage. Uh, it's kind of a desperate hope. 
but I know that, that if we think back to centuries and thousands of years, everybody has always felt like the the world was about to end. It was mm-hmm. a plague, the Black Plague, or it was uh, uh, the, the flu epidemic during World War One. It was the, the the war to end all wars, which didn't end all wars. And people have always been, they've always been the optimists and always been the pessimists. And the world is, has looked bleak very often before and somehow or other it survived. The trouble is that we, we're, we're pushing the envelope very hard these days and with, with what we call global warming, but really is global chaos in terms of weather and uh, the possibilities of coastal cities being, you know, uh, washed away. Uh, I'm living in a brownstone on, in New York's Upper West Side, and it's a very steep hill down to the Hudson River, but I can imagine that this building, which we bought for a song and became a symphony, could become a song again, mm-hmm. or it could become a plaintive cry, cri de coeur, if the waters continue to rise. And uh, so we really, really must do something about it. But in the meantime, we need to enjoy what life we have. And I have a new girlfriend. You uh, do? Uh, yeah. She's only 76. Only 76? She's a, she's, a young, she's a young one. How did you meet? She's Is it Tinder? <laughs> she's very beautiful. This is an old picture for her, but she's very beautiful and she's very sweet. And she so reminds me of Arlene that that's, I don't like to say that's why I'm, I, I'm with her because she's who she is, mm-hmm. because she reminded me of Arlene. But there's such a great commonality that I feel very blessed again to enjoy our days. We need to be uh, somehow maintain optimistic. And so, you know, in my writing, I need to live to be 120s because I got so many projects to do. Well, I have to ask you, why work so hard right now? You should just be hanging out with your girlfriend, going out, having fun, relaxing. You have all the money in the world. Why keep writing? Well, I mean, you have have enough, right? You have have enough, definitely. Yeah. So what keeps you motivated? What motivates me? Because I love to write. Mm-hmm. I've been writing all my life, and I, I'm, there's nothing as satisfying as looking back at a piece that you've just written and seeing, damn it, it's good. And then hearing people tell you, I did a piece for the New York Observer, and I, you know, they wanted something on a writer's journey. Uh, it's online, I guess. And I read I, it. I read it. Oh, did you really? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, yeah, and you said you love to write in the very first paragraph. That that's <laughs> that's ultimately what uh, has kept you going so strong all these years. Yeah, and I and I've tried everything that I can possibly try. I've, I've written a, a film script. For my, my my son and I have written that. Uh, it was my my idea, and we just developed it together. I love working with my son, who is a writer who's had two wonderful books, and. Um, it's just, as then I've written a musical, and I, I brought him in on that too. He wrote a couple of hilarious scenes in it. We had a first, we had a second reading at the JCC in Manhattan, and it was really, really well received. So we're just finding a place to go with it. But you know, to 
from 80th Street to 45th and Broadway is only a couple of miles, but it takes 10 years to travel that far. Oh, yeah. If ever, so, if, if ever, ever you yeah, get there, but, right. Yeah, whatever. Well, yeah, I don't know. But I loved writing it. And as I sat in the second row watching it at the JCC, I felt like I was floating in air. I, I sat down as a writer and I got up as a playwright. It's so wonderful. Some writers would say, and I think I would agree, that while I don't love the process of writing, I love having written. That's a famous quote. And I didn't invent it. Someone else said that. Um, but what's even more beautiful and magical about something like a play is that you really get to see it come to life. You get to immediately see people react to it. And yeah, that's quite the, uh, that's quite the drug. Well, I have ideas for a couple of other plays too. One of them with my girlfriend, because she's involved in a situation that comes more and more to people our age, which is that, um, and this is the subtitle. I don't have a title for it, but it's when parent, when children become the parents and they try mm -hmm. to dictate out of, you know, usually out of the best of motives. They want to find you a place where you're safe and, and and at the same time leave you there. So they just park you there so that they can go and live their lives. Um, this, this, is, this is a play that, that exists in my head because she doesn't want to be there. She wants to be out in the world and we want to travel together. But her family is making it difficult. <laughs> Where so, would you like to travel to next? Well, we, we, for my 90th birthday, which is in, in August, um, we're talking about going to uh, the St. Lawrence Waterway in a riverboat, uh, taking a lot of the family for four days. And then if we really like it, then Bonnie and I will stay on for a, kind of a honeymoon. We have to work this out, though. We have things we have to accomplish for <laughs> Yes. Howard, what's the one bit of advice that people ask you for time and time again that you find yourself being the expert on, that people say, this is my friend Howard or this is my dad Howard. You should ask him about this because you know so much about it or you are so passionate besides writing. Well, let's make that question question A, but I hope you'll leave, leave time for question B. Sure. So they ask you about what you're writing these days. <laughs> but question A, question A is, uh, I think I hear most often, I heard it the night that my, that we were having like maybe 75 people in my, in our, in our living room and, um, Arlene had died that morning and <laughs> it's going to be hard. Um, they wanted to know, they wanted advice. They said, you would write something about what makes marriage so successful and what you need to do to make, to make a happy marriage and, and keep a relationship healthy. And, uh, I started to think about it and the, the first two pieces of advice came from, uh, from, uh, one of the least came from her mother, which is a pretty common piece of advice. Never go to bed mad. Really, the word is angry, not mad. <laughs> um, and I, when we, we, you know, I, when I was asked by another woman I had been going out with for, for a while, 
don't you ever have fights? Didn't you ever have fights with your wife? And I said, no, I never had fights with Arlene. Everything was always wonderful. Then I realized, yes, we had fights. And when we did, I listened to the advice of her mother, which echoed in my ears, never go to bed mad. So I would always apologize to Arlene, even if I thought I was right. And we went to bed happy. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, um, at the moment I'm stymied. I can't remember. <laughs> Maybe it'll come back tonight. That's a, that's, pl- wow. I was oh, going to ask you that question, but you beat me to it. I got the second one. Got the second one. This was from Arlene, and I think it's brilliant. He said, when there is an argument, the one to whom it's most important should win. And you take turns doing that. It's, it's always more important. The, the fight can go on because anger builds up and you forget that it's not really that important to you. Yeah. But it's important to your partner. So let the partner win. Do what she, you know, she or he feels at that moment he cares about a lot. So those are the two major things that I can say offhand. Well, they say that one of the biggest reasons couples fight and sometimes divorce is because of money. Yeah, I'm sure. Did you and Arlene have any disagreements around the money or different takes on how to manage the money? Not really. Not really, because we didn't, we, money was never the important thing to us. It was doing what we loved doing, and it was family. We, we had three wonderful children, and I mean wonderful. And they still are, uh, in contrast to my, to Bonnie's, oh, I shouldn't, shouldn't say this, but they're, they're so concerned about our safety that they don't care what she wants. But my kids, and they they love the idea that I've got a new new one in my life, a new woman in my life. And whatever I want to do is fine with them. So um, I don't know how that relates to your question, but what was the question? <laughs> the question was, did you and Arlene ever have disagreements over around money? What kind of conversations did you have about yeah. money? Okay, there is one. It wasn't about money, really. It was about we were living in uh, in Rockland County, and uh, our children had jobs and had got, just gotten jobs in New York. And Arlene was working as a, an executive editor for a magazine, uh, just temporarily because she wanted to help them out. So on her lunch hour, she started looking for a, a place to a, a house that we could all live in that would satisfy the children and satisfy us because, because the children have said, if you stay where you're living, you're never going to see us <laughs> because it's too far away. And so Arlene, to me, that was, okay, that's normal. Kids go away and well, they, that's their right. But Arlene wanted to be with her children. So she started shopping on her lunch hour for brownstone. And she found this one on West 80th Street. And the people who got there before her couldn't get a mortgage. So she said, we gotta go, we gotta move there. And we didn't have enough money to put a down payment. But I was able to borrow it from a, a, a 
my cousin's husband and five thousand dollars to make the, make it happen. And so we bought it and we moved into a place that was kind of a wreck, but it's turned out to be a jewel. And as I've said, we uh, we bought it for a song and now it's a symphony. But it was Arlene wanted to move to New York and it was hard to get me to leave the country. I thought it was really nice there. But it was more important to her. Yeah. And there goes that argument thing. So I said, okay, we'll do it. And it was a great move. She always made great moves. How many years ago was this? It was about 1980. 1980. So about 35, 36 years ago. I don't need to tell you the math. That's probably a nice little nest egg you're living in. (laughs) I can just tell you it's worth about, I don't know, maybe 20 times what we paid for it. Oh, my gosh. But we don't want that Hudson River to come up and No, I was going to say, you're scaring me with your Hudson River story. I I used to live on 80th Street. We were neighbors all these years. Uh, Maybe that's why I really just liked living up there so much. Your energy, your spirit was consuming the neighborhood. They still, well, I don't know about mine, but there is so much energy in the neighborhood. There are musicians, there are writers, there are therapists, there are uh, the... uh, Colin Powell's daughter lived on the street. You have a new piece of work that's coming out soon, right? It's your collection of poems dedicated to your grandkids and all grandchildren out there. Tell us about this piece of work. Well, a lot of the things that I did over the years, well, Arlene and I, you know, always wrote articles together. We wrote for the Saturday Evening Post. We wrote for Cosmopolitan, for Ladies Home Journal, McCall's, Parade, Reader's Digest. We were always, always by Arlene and Howard Eisenberg, and it was wonderful. Um, we wrote for Look Magazine. We got some awards, and uh, it was a kind of article that she was best in. She would be doing most of the writing. It was kind of thing I love to do. I would do most of the writing. But we always did it together and always shared the byline. And when when she got involved with, with Heidi, who was pregnant, and they decided to write a book about pregnancy, um, that was a moment in which um, she, she continued to do some writing with me, but she became Heidi's partner more, more than mine. Um, and that was fine because, you know, she had, it was an important project. And it's become, become important for millions of, almost billions by this time, of women in 30-some languages and 34 million copies. But... At that point, um, she she was doing book tours when the book came out, and we went to Australia and New Zealand um, on two coach tickets because she had been given a uh, first-class ticket by her publisher in Australia, and she did not want to go without me. So um, she traded them in for coach tickets, and we went that way. And when we got there, uh, one of, she did a whole lot of interviews. And in Melbourne, there was a great zoo. And I had thought about doing a, a book about zoos. So I went there and took lots of notes about animals. And when we went home, I had a lot of postcards. And I started writing postcards to our grandchildren. And instead of just saying, hey, we had a wonderful time, wish you were here, I started writing what I called Guess Who Poems. And they were about the animals. And there was a clue in every line because I had all this information about them. And the last word was left blank so that kids couldn't guess what the animal was. 
I've got the I've got those books here. I've got the Guess Who Zoo, the Guess Who Farm, and the Guess Who Neighborhood have have, have occurred since then. So those books happened because again, Arlene, whenever she read to our grandchildren and she read poetry to them, she'd gather around to her and she would leave leave she would stop to pause to let them guess the rhymes. And that's where I got the idea to do this book. The book is 43 poems. That, and again, Arlene's involved because when she was doing What to Expect in the Toddler Years, I spent a lot of time with her and met a lot of toddlers. And she used to introduce me when she did talks, saying, if, you need a to- if you're going to have a toddler, you better have a sense of humor. <laughs> and then she'd bring me up to read some of the poems that I had before it was a book. And afterwards, parents would come up and say, where can I get the book? And 20 years later, I actually got it published. But for example, um, Holding Pattern. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. stuff by Susan Robinson, who illustrated it. Um, why am I pushing this stroller? Holding my toddler, looking harried. I had no idea when I bought it, she'd want to be carried. <laughs> she'd prefer to be carried. And then there, you know, I can open to any phase and crisis in the maternity ward. Chelsea, Kimberly, maybe Dakota, Geneva, Cindy, not one iota of time left to us before it's too late. Got to name this child and it's got to be great. Valerie, Ivy, how about Sasha? Or would she prefer the son of Natasha? We're going nowhere. Our quest much too aimless. Oops. Here comes the nurse. Well, for now, she'll be nameless. <laughs> that actually happened with my first daughter. We couldn't figure out a name. How long did it take you to give her a name? Well. Did you bring her home without a name? Some people are doing that now. They're bringing their children home from the hospital without a name. Baby Eisenberg on her wrist when we took her home. <laughs> so I finally did not didn't, didn't name her. But I'll just read one more because I know you can't go on forever. Okay, careful what you wish for. We couldn't wait for his first step, but that was ill-advised. Suddenly he's a toddler, and now we're terrorized. <laughs> so Yeah, I'm a prisoner in my own home these days. What can I say? My son is two. Oh, really? He's almost two. Yeah, he'll be two in a month. Oh, where does the time go? Well, it's tougher, especially. I, I don't know how old you are, but if you're in, in if you're in your, you know, in your forties and you're having a child, it's <laughs> you're you're more eager than ever. That, that's why I have mom in the middle. It was simply grand at forty to have my first baby at last, <sighs> but now faced with reality, I sure hope he'll grow up fast. <laughs> And on the Upper West Side, I'm sure there are more than a few parents in their 40s for the first time. It's uh, an interesting thing is you see a lot of fathers pushing strollers now. That's changed a lot. Yeah. Did you ever change diapers, Howard? Was that uh, something that dads, you did? did. Yeah. There weren't many fathers who did in those days. Yeah. Not not so hands-on back then, but definitely these days. Right. Stay-at-home dads, some of them, you know. I wrote a book called When She Makes More. Oh, that's a good title. And Howard, it's such a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. 
Well, I had such a wonderful time talking to you. I have to invite you to, to lunch or dinner. Oh, I'd love that. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. You too. Thank you so much to my guest, Howard Eisenberg. If you'd like to learn more about him, please go visit howardeisenbergauthor.com. He also told me, and I'm not really sure about sharing this, but you know what? He said he likes to get mail. So if you have something nice to say to Howard and you don't want to send him any spam mail, you can email him, sirhowardeisenberg at gmail.com. He says he likes to get mail and he looks forward to hearing from you and connecting with you if you have something uh, that you'd like to share with him. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. As a reminder, Fridays are our Ask Farnoosh episodes and I love hearing from you. So if you have a money question, a career question, a comment for this show, for me, for guests, if you have a recommendation for future guests, go on to somoneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh and that's the best way for us to get in touch. Thanks again and and hope your day is so money.